Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Drinks with Allie podcast, where we're talking everything from red red wine to pina coladas. My name is Allie, and today is Wednesday, April 8th. This is episode 45, and it's a Wine Wednesday show. Today on the show, we'll talk, take a look at a style of wine that is typically thought of as a sweet red dessert style wine, though it also comes in dry, semi-sweet, and it also has a white version. So we will talk all about pork today. Oh, and happy National Beer Day, everyone. I hope you raise a frosty draft to such an auspicious day to the talents and hard work of your favorite brewer. Today, with pork, we'll take a peek at the history, production, and the flavor profiles of some of the major uh, port styles. So let's jump on in. Firstly, we should note that true port must be made in the Juro Valley of northern Portugal. There other, are other port-style fortified wines made across the world in many wine-growing regions. Um, so the U.S., Canada, Australia, South Africa, um, all kinds of other places. Chile all make a port-style wine, but in order to truly be port, it must be made in Juro Valley. Under the European Union protected designation of origin, only those fortified wines made in Portugal can be labeled as port. Now, historically, the Juro Valley is the third oldest wine-growing region that is protected by such a designation. The oldest is Tokai Hegelica in Hungary, and then Chianti in Italy. Those are the only two that are older. Um, and we'll get into why when port became a protected area in a little bit. So we know that grapes have been growing in the Juro Valley since before the fall of the Roman Empire. After the fall, uh, the local and so-called barbarian tribes took over and sustained the traditions and practices of viticulture and winemaking in the valley. So these are ancient wine-growing regions, right? We're talking one to two hundred years BC that they've been growing grapes in that specific region and probably longer. Um, so then fast forward to the mid-ninth century AD to when Gothic King Odoro grants ownership of the vineyards in the Jura Valley around Combra to a monastic Christian order. So we see the vines moving from just like the peasantry into the gentry and then being gifted to the monks, which was very common in Europe at the time. Um, most traditional wine-growing regions and spirits are made originally by monks and various monastic orders. Now, we don't know exactly when the style that is port was invented. Um, it's very clouded, but sometime after that, and prior to the 1700s. We do know that in 1703, under the Methuen Treaty, which was basically a military and trade treaty between Portugal and England, 
the English began to drink port in droves. Basically, what happens is the taxes were so high on French wine and the French and English were at war, making everyone look for anything other than French wine to drink. So they kind of were like, oh, well, we'll just not drink French or Spanish wine because that would be, you know, unpatriotic. We also know that in 1678, so just slightly prior to that, a Liverpool wine merchant sent two wine buyers to the Juro Valley area um, to find new wines to purchase. And while they were there, they visited several wineries, and they visited a specific place called the Abbot of Lamego, who gave them a fortified wine that was, quote, very agreeable, Swedish, and extremely smooth. They were so impressed that they bought the whole lot, like all of the wine, which all means that the Portuguese monks had to have had the recipe pretty dialed in by that point for two wine buyers to buy the entire lot. So if you think about it, these guys go and they're drinking wine and they decide that this one producer is going to be the producer that they drink all of their wine from. So the designation protecting port as being made in the Juro Valley also comes into play around 1703 to 1706, kind of in that area. Um, There was a rise in the time of fraudulent bottling and scams happening. So then the um, Portuguese government decided, okay, we're going to protect what is known as port because we want to keep the money flowing. So less professional or scrupulous producers would truck in grapes from outside of the area. They would add sugar. They would add elderberry juice. They would add spices like pepper or cinnamon or ginger into the barrels, creating a similar tasting and looking product to traditional port at a much lower cost of goods. So it was cost them way less to create, but it was way less quality. So there was a, a bit of a scam there. Um, we see it happen any of the protected wine growing regions. This is what happens. So the same thing happened in Bordeaux. The same things happened in Burgundy. The same things happened in Champagne. Um, every time that a region starts to get really big and they're making a lot of money, somebody comes in and tries to make a scam. So from that point forward, port stayed very much an Englishman's drink until the early 1800s during the Napoleonic Wars when trade to the region was cut off. So Napoleon, being the very smart man that he was, Um, invaded the Juro Valley um, and basically forced all of the English merchants out. So they couldn't trade, and it basically closed off the Juro to all the trade that they had been doing previous. Um, Interestingly enough, 
the locals actually chased both the French and Spanish armies out of their area after a couple of years and protected their vines, excuse me, themselves. And though it's seen a resurgence in popularity in recent years, port is still just kind of like a steady chugging wine. It grows moderately despite all of the upheaval in the region and the world. Um, so remember you had then um, the Spanish War of Independence, which is right near their border. In Portuguese War of Independence, you had the First World War, Second World War, um, all of which kind of cause a lot of upheaval in the early part of the 20th, 20th century for the area. Alrighty, on to production. So there are some modern ways to make port, so like crush equipment, etc. Um, but the basics remain the same. And a lot of kind of the modern stuff, the wineries will use some modern techniques, but also some ancient techniques. Um, they're very good at protecting kind of what is theirs. The grapes, however, must be hand harvested. The Jura Valley is both very steep and narrow, too narrow for tractors, and too steep for them. They'll probably roll down the side of the hill. And it is a UNESCO, UNESCO World Heritage Site. So there can't even be tractors on the land anyways. So it's a protected area. Um, it has historical designation. And it has to be done as such. So the grapes are all harvested at the same time. There are hundreds of allowable grapes uh, in a blend of port though there are only five that are kind of super common for production. Those grapes, hang with me, my Portuguese isn't that great. Tanta Barroca, Tanta Cao, Tanta Ruiza, which we would know as Tempranillo, Toriga Francesca, and Toriga Nacional. Um, I have had Toriga Nacional as a standalone varietal from this region as like a dry table wine. It's very delicious, very light-bodied. Um, from all of the research that I've done, I could be wrong, but they seem to be interplanted in the vineyards, creating field blends of ripe grapes of all varietals. Um, so as they're ready, they're just harvesting the varietals off of each um, plant that's ready to go when it's ripe. The grapes are then transported to the wineries where they're crushed in lagars, which are large open-top fermenters made of stone or concrete. In the Jura Valley, they are specifically made of concrete, or sorry, of granite. They must weigh an absolute ton. Can you imagine a giant fermenter made of granite? It's a lot of rock. It's a very slow crush and can take up to three days. Some of the wineries do still crush by human foot. Um, some do use mechanical crushers, but it's a slow process. And because of that, the wine starts to ferment a little bit in these open-top fermenters. Once it's done being crushed, though, it gets moved to fermentation tanks, more traditionally to what we see um, everywhere else, where it ferments until it reaches a determined sugar level. So the winemaker says, okay, that's as sweet as we want it to be. And they stop the fermentation at that point. They do this by adding brandy into the mix 
Um, so they add it very slowly and evenly so that the yeast calmly, quote unquote, fall to sleep rather than explode and die. Um, about 30% of the total volume of a port is brandy that's been added to reach the minimum alcohol by volume of 17.5%. So that's required as well. Port has to be at least 17.5%. So port also ages in kind of a weird way. It, the producers use a combination of small oak barrels called pipettes um, that import, impart a very nutty flavor and large oak balsarios, um, which can be steel, so just neutral containers, which maintain more of the wine's true taste. And this is used to balance the flavors and make a more rounded wine. So it's very kind of specific to each winery in and of itself. Port producers must also age for a minimum of two years, but can only sell 30% of a vintage at any given time. So that means that legally they have to store a lot of vintage port or of older port, stuff that's aged. So style-wise, oh boy, is there ever a bunch. We're going to take a look at just a few of kind of like the most traditional and most classic that we see. Um, just know that there are some others that you can get a hold of if you do a lot of digging. First up, we have Ruby Port which are the least expensive to purchase and the most widely produced. So instead of aging in oak, these spend their time in sealed steel or concrete tanks. Um, they're sealed up in, they're sealed up to preserve the bright red color. So there's no oxidation that happens at all. Um, these ports are boldly raspberry and cranberry forward flavors and they also have some cinnamon-type notes. They're pretty high in acid, so they're great with a lot of different foods. Up next uh, is Tawny Port. They are golden brown in color, which is a result of oxidation from being gradually exposed to the air, and this is what gives port its traditional nutty flavor. So we typically think of port as being slightly oxidized, um, in general. So that's a real distinction with Ruby Port is that it hasn't had that oxidization happen. Tawny Ports can be sweet or they can be medium dry. Um, so they can be slightly off dry. A basic Tawny Port, so if you just see Tawny on the bottle, has to age for three years. A reserve Tawny is aged for seven. And then a producer can produce a Tawny that is an age of 10, 20, 30, or 40 years, um, which is a blend of multiple vintages that are basically close to that number. Vintage port is our next one, spending a maximum of two and a half years in barrels or stainless steel tanks. They're then bottled and aged for 10 to 40 years. Holy cow, that's a long time. Um, so much like vintage wine, a vintage port must be made entirely from grapes of that vintage and they decide in the spring so they harvest in the fall they let it age and they have to decide in the spring if they're going to label this barrel as specifically for a vintage port otherwise it'll just get blended into their blends 
and it'll just kind of become what it is. Um, these ports can age for years, like literally hundreds of years. There are also what we call a late bottle vintage or LBV, which are ports that should have been made into vintage ports, but because there was no demand, they were left in the barrel longer than that two and a half years. Um, so they taste very similar to a vintage port, but they are slightly different. Um, there are two styles of land vintage port. It should be listed on the bottle, but it may not be. The first is filtered. The other is unfiltered. Unfiltered can pass for a true vintage port in a blind tasting. Tastes very similar, but you will find that it is slightly less expensive than a vintage port. Where filtered ports are usually lighter and don't age as well. So ruby ports and late bottle vintage that have been filtered, not the greatest for aging. All of the others are awesome if you want to age them. They can be decanted into a decanter with a stopper and you can have them for you know, a few weeks to a few months to a few years um, that will hold on. They're usually delicious that way. And they just keep developing. So you can, um, like a vintage port or tawny port, you can open the cork, pour a little bit out, put the cork back in, revisit it in 6, 8, 12, 24 months, and it will change a little bit. Um, that is the beauty and nature of port. So with that, guys, we'll wrap up another episode. I hope this will encourage you to try that bottle of port that you see sitting at the liquor store, or maybe it's sitting in your wine cellar that's a little bit dusty. Remember, there are drier ports, so there is something called a white port, which is basically a tawny port um, that is, in, is oxidized but also isn't colorized. Um, I'm not quite sure how the practice happens. Anyways, they're exceptional with seafood and sushi, should you want like a really cool pairing. And sweeter ports, like tawnies and vintage ports, are an excellent choice with your next cheese board. If you want to get in contact with me, whether to give me a question, concern, or a show topic idea, you can do that in a couple of ways. You can head over to the website, drinkswithally.com, and you can leave me a comma, comment on episode 45's podcast page, or you can fill in the contact me form. It comes directly to me. You can send me an email to drinkswithally at gmail.com, and I will answer it there. If you send me a question, I'll probably answer it on air, air as well. Or we can meet up on social media. So it's at Drinks with Allie on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MeWe, TikTok, uh, Pinterest, and Spotify. So with that, guys, fill your glass with something tasty. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>